we're going to read the Bible now. Uh, we're going to be reading from Matthew 3. Um, so it'll come up on the screen, but why don't you get out your Bible uh, at home as well um, and read along uh, with me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So I know that I'm late to the party, but this time for the first, this week, for the first time in my life, I tried Wordle. Have you ever had a crack at Wordle? If you've never done it, Wordle's a game where you've got six attempts to guess a five-letter word. And each guess you make, you're told which of your letters are correct and which of them are in the right spot. And Wordle has taken the world by storm. It was invented by a guy named Josh Wardle in October 2021, so only last year. And he really only created it so that his wife, who was a bit of a board game person, says she could have a bit of fun with it. But he posted it online and not a whole lot happened until someone in New Zealand posted it on Twitter. And within two months, Wordle went from 90 people using it every day to more than 2 million people using it every day. At its height, 3 million people were logging onto Wordle every single day, 45 million people around the world all up, which is huge, isn't it? I mean, Wordle literally has just taken the world by storm. And yet as a phenomenon, Wordle's nothing. Remember back in 2016 when the whole world went crazy for this? Pokemon Go was huge, wasn't it? 
It was a massive worldwide phenomenon. Everyone jumped on board Pokemon Go. So while Wordle had 3 million users at its absolute height, Pokemon Go had 230 million users. 230 million people walking the streets with their eyes glued to their phones trying to catch Pikachu. In fact, it actually got dangerous. In the first six months of Pokemon Go alone, there were 256 deaths and 150,000 traffic accidents just in America in the first six months caused by people playing Pokemon Go. In fact, nearly two and a half thousand people have died playing Pokemon Go in the last six years because it's just that engrossing. And look, you might think that no one actually plays it anymore. And certainly fewer people do. But last year, Pokemon Go still made $1.2 billion profit. I wouldn't mind being that unpopular just quietly. Because, of course, there's all the merchandising that goes with it, isn't there? There's the Pokemon Go t-shirts and Pokemon Go hats and Pokemon Go backpacks and lunchboxes and pyjamas. Every phenomenon has to have the merch that they sell alongside it. Isn't it funny how our world can just suddenly go crazy, completely bonkers for the latest craze? Wordle, Pokemon Go. Every few years when I was a kid, everyone would go crazy for yo-yos for about three weeks. And in our passage today, John the Baptist is the latest craze to sweep through Palestine. Have a look in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see, John the Baptist is the latest new preacher in town and he's got a big, bold new message. And just look down in verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. See, John is a huge success. He set up camp in the Jordan River, which actually, when you think about it, isn't the most obvious place to go if you want to start a craze. I mean, Jerusalem would have been a more central, obvious place, but it doesn't matter because the people are traveling to, out to John from miles and miles around Jerusalem, Judea, the whole area around the Jordan. Everyone's going out to John to be baptized in the wilderness in the Jordan River. More than that, the important people are flocking to John the Baptist too. So see down in 3 verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come out to the Jordan River as well. Now look, that's when you know that you have made it big. See, it's one thing to attract a crowd of people. It's a different thing altogether to attract the important people. The movers and the shakers, the politicians and the leaders and the celebrities, that's when you know when you've really made it, when all those people jump on board. Because you see, leaders don't join trends. Leaders set trends. They sit back and wait for people to come to them. But here they are, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've gone out to John. They've joined the crowd out in the Jordan wilderness to see this latest craze, John the Baptist. And you can almost imagine the carnival atmosphere out there, can't you? 
the word spreading far and wide. People are coming from all directions. People are getting baptized and there's this growing sense of excitement. This is something new. What's it all about? Where's it all heading? People are buzzing and they're positive. And if it was our day and age, you can imagine the food vans would be going out there as well because they can see an opportunity. Come and get your Baptist burgers while you're getting baptized. I mean, when you think about it, if John the Baptist's smart, this is an opportunity for merch, isn't it? T-shirts with John the Baptist's face on it. Locust and honey snacks for people to eat while they're, get, while they're waiting in line. John the Baptist camel hair hoodie to hand out to people. If John plays his cards right, he could be the new Pikachu here. He could be the latest craze to sweep Jerusalem. And yet John actually has a big surprise for the people. In fact, to be honest, he does something completely strange. Have a look in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, that's not exactly what you would have expected, is it? John clearly has not read the marketing books. I mean, what a missed opportunity. Instead of welcoming him, instead of getting the photo opportunity with all the celebrities and exploiting his fame, John starts abusing people. You brood of vipers, he yells at them. This is no way to establish a brand, is it? What's going on? Well, look, Matthew tells us what's going on right up front. Just have a look from verse one again. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken about through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. You see, John isn't actually the latest craze to strike Judea. He's the living, breathing fulfillment of prophecy. John the Baptist fulfills a 700-year-old promise that God made through Isaiah. So come back with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll see God's promise. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. See, here's the story. Israel, who are God's people, are in the midst of a time of deep suffering. They're suffering under God's punishment, actually. Because for generations and generations, they've taken, they haven't taken God seriously and they've taken God for granted. And so God has sent nations, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, to invade and enslave Israel. And so at this point, Israel are a sorry and downtrodden lot. That's actually what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 is all about. But now, in chapter 40, God says, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Tell them that the time for punishment is over. The time for forgiveness has come. See, God's going to forgive his people. And in fact, to show that he's forgiving his people, God is going to do something that's frankly amazing. God is going to come and rescue his people himself. 
God himself is going to come down to earth. So look at Isaiah 40 verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, this is extraordinary. God himself is coming to rescue his people. And yet, even though it's extraordinary, this is actually a pretty familiar theme. In the Bible, God being with his people or sending his people away from him is actually a really big theme. God being with his people is a sign of blessing, isn't it? So God's with Adam and Eve in the garden. And God's with Israel at Mount Sinai and in the desert. And God's with his people as he's in the temple in the promised land. And in fact, in Revelation 22, God says, now I will dwell with my people. That's what heaven is. Because God being with his people is a sign of blessing. And being sent away from God, that's a sign of punishment, isn't it? So God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and God sends Cain away. And God sends Israel from the promised land. And now in Isaiah 40, he's promising to be with them again. This is actually a huge promise. This is one of the high points of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40 is a big moment. That's why in Isaiah 40, God sends a preacher, a voice to tell people about it. Verse three, there's a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, God sends this voice ahead of him. And Matthew says, well, that's who John the Baptist is. He's not just the latest craze to sweep through Judea. John the Baptist is that voice telling people that God is on his way. God is coming to earth. And in fact, this is actually one of those great passages that help us to realize that Jesus is God, isn't it? Because who is that that comes along behind John in Matthew? Well, it's Jesus. So John is this voice telling people to get ready for God. And then Jesus walks onto the stage. Matthew 3 is one of those great passages to show us that Jesus is God. Lots of Christians kind of struggle to be able to prove that Jesus is God. You know, we might be talking to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, and we often think the only way I can prove that Jesus is God is I've got to find one of those passages that explicitly says it. And there are some of those passages more than you might think. So John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Thomas calls Jesus God at the end of the gospel. He says, my Lord, and my God. Paul says to Titus that we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And Peter says that through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, we've received a precious faith. See, the Bible actually does say very clearly that Jesus is God. But there are other ways also that the Bible proves that Jesus is God. One of them is Jesus regularly does things God does. So in Mark chapter 2, Jesus forgives sins. And the teachers of the law say, but who can forgive sins but God alone? In John 5, Jesus does three things that God does. He raises the dead, he judges in God's place, and he gets God's honour. 
In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus the Lamb sits on God's throne and all the creatures of heaven worship him. That'd be an awful blasphemy if Jesus wasn't God, wouldn't it? You see, we know that Jesus is God because the Bible tells us explicitly, but also because we see Jesus doing what God does. But you know, a third way the New Testament shows us that Jesus is God is it takes Old Testament passages about God and it applies them to Jesus. So for instance, in Isaiah 45, God says, I am God and there is no other. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They'll say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. That's Isaiah 45. And then in Philippians 2, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Paul takes an Old Testament passage that's clearly about the one true God and he applies it directly to Jesus. Psalm 102 says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. They'll perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. Now, that's clearly about the one true God, isn't it? And yet the author of Hebrews quotes it and says, It's about Jesus the Son. In Isaiah chapter 40, the voice says, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. God himself is coming. And the very next thing that happens is Jesus strides onto the stage. You see, the Bible's absolutely clear. Jesus isn't just a prophet or a teacher. Jesus isn't just a wise man, the kind of first century equivalent of Jordan Peterson. No, Jesus is God come to earth. And that means Israel had better get themselves ready. Have you still got Isaiah chapter 40 open? Have a look in verse 3. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See what that passage is saying? It's saying God's coming. So you'd better make everything ready. Clear his path, flatten down the hills, fill up the valley, smooth the road so his chariot can come through. Prepare God's way. Because you see, that's what you do. Whenever someone huge comes to town, you prepare the way. Many years ago, I went to, to Dubbo out in Whoopity-Doo, New South Wales, and I was visiting a friend who lived there, and I was also going to the zoo, and my friend showed me around the main street of Dubbo. And he said that a while before, the whole main street had kind of been spiffed up because the Queen was coming, you know, and they repainted all the buildings, and they did a whole bunch of landscaping, and they planted trees, and they put in these pylons, and I understand they did it again in 2018 when Harry and Meghan were visiting didn't work. It's still Dubbo. It's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. But you see, that's what you do whenever someone important visits. You get everything ready. You prepare their path. And the voice in Isaiah 40 says, get to it. God is coming. Flatten the mountains. Fill up the valleys. Except John the Baptist says, well, 
Actually, there's a more important way to get ready for God than planting trees or filling mountains. Come back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, and see how John says to get ready for God. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's how you prepare for God's arrival. Don't worry about the mountains and the valleys. They're fine the way they are. Never mind tubs of flowers. You get ready for God by repenting. So what's repenting? How do you repent? Well, it's actually a really simple word. To repent really just means to turn around. It means to do a U-turn. Stop going one way and start going the other. Change your mind, change your behavior. When it comes to God, repenting means stop rebelling against God and start worshiping God. Stop ignoring God and start obeying God. Stop going against God, now go with God. That's what repenting is. It's It's turning back to God. And that's what John says. Never mind the mountains and the valleys, says John. God's coming, so you need to repent. You need to turn back to him, stop sinning, come and worship him and obey him. And in fact, that's what John's baptism was a sign of. So have a look in Matthew 3, verse 6. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. See, John's baptism was this symbol. It symbolized the end of one thing and the beginning of another. The end of rebelling against God, the beginning of worshiping him. And so they confessed their sins and they turned back to God. Baptism was a symbol of repentance. And in fact, John's clothes were a symbol of repentance too. You see, it's not just that camel hair happened to be in that year. No, John is wearing the same clothes that Elijah the prophet wore. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who called Israel to repent and turn back to God. He said, repent, get rid of your idols and and worship the true God. And John's wearing the same clothes because he's calling for the same thing. He's Elijah calling Israel back to God. God is coming. Get ready. Stop rebelling, start obeying, stop ignoring, start worshipping, stop sinning, start obeying. And in fact, that's why John is so fierce with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because the fact is, their repentance wasn't sincere. They were coming out to John. But their repentance wasn't sincere and it wasn't genuine. So have another look in Matthew 3, verse 5. People were coming out to John from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, all sorts of people are coming out to John and they are actually getting ready for God. They're confessing their sins. They're repenting and turning back. 
but among them are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel. And sure, they might be getting baptized like the rest of the people. They might be confessing their sins, but for them, it was all show. It was all gen- None of it was genuine because it didn't actually bear any fruit in their lives. I mean, they were only going out there to the Jordan River because this was the latest place to be. John's baptism was the latest thing. It was where the action was. And so if you're going to look the part, you've got to go out and get baptized by John. John's baptism was like getting Wordle in the first go or catching Pikachu on Pokemon Go or having the latest yo-yo. It was just the latest thing to do, but it had nothing to do with their heart. Their lives showed that they weren't sincere. And you can imagine how offensive that is to God, right? God coming is not just the latest craze. God coming is the creator and judge coming to earth. God coming is tremendous stuff. When God comes to earth, he shakes mountains and splits mountains. And so John lets fly at them because of their insincerity. He says, you brood of vipers, how dare you produce fruit in keeping with the repentance that you're talking about here. He's saying, you lot aren't sincere. And your lives show it. You are not really turning back to God. You're just posing. In fact, he says, you aren't the real people of God at all. See, just have a look at how belligerent John is, how confrontational he is in verse 9. He says, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You see, John says, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not the real children, the real people of God at all. They're not the real children of Abraham at all because their repentance wasn't genuine. And what that means is John says they're actually facing God's judgment when he comes, not his comfort. They're going to face God's anger. They're going to face God's axe in this passage. They're going to face God's fire because John says behind him, God's going to come, but not with a baptism of water. No, but with a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. I think the Holy Spirit, because it'll separate out the true people of God from the false people of God, and then the fire of judgment will separate the real from the fakes as well. That is, when God comes, says John, he's going to separate the sincere from the insincere, the wheat from the chaff and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, as much as they look like the real deal, John the Baptist says, you are not the real people of God. That's actually why John is baptizing people. So it's kind of strange that John was baptizing at all because it was something that the Jews didn't normally do. You didn't get baptized if you're a Jew. No, you got baptized if you wanted to become a Jew. So Greeks and Romans and Egyptians who wanted to become Jews, they're the people who got baptized. Baptism was a sign of joining God's people from the outside. 
And now John is making that point. He's saying, you people who think you are inside God's kingdom, you're not. Being in God's kingdom only comes by repentance. You have to repent and turn back to God. That's why John's doing all this in the Jordan River. I mean, if he wanted to be in the center of things, he would have gone to Jerusalem, the capital city. But John's baptizing in the Jordan because it was the boundary of the original promised land. He's saying being the people of God is actually at stake here. If you repent, if you turn from your rebellion, then you can come into the promised land. You can become one of the people of God. But if you don't repent, well, even with all your religion, even with all your flowing beards, even with your great positions and rule, you're just a fraud. And this can actually be a timely message, can't it? If you call yourself a Christian, sometimes we need to hear this too. We need to hear that God's people are actually marked by a genuine repentance from sin. You can tell the real people of God because when they're confronted with God, they genuinely do repent of their sin. They turn back to God, they search their hearts, they search their lives, and they want to do what, God, what pleases God. And it's funny, you know, the, the human heart is just so deceitful. It's so sneaky and tricky. I can find all sorts of ways of looking like someone who is genuine with God, looking like a real Christian, but actually keeping God at a distance and never having to repent of my sin. Let me show you four classics. The first one is having a family faith. I'm a Christian because I was born into the right family. So my parents are Christian, my grandparents are Christian, going back generations, and we've been part of this church here for generations. See, our name is on the pews and on the plaques, and my parents baptized me as a baby, and they raised me as a Christian, and they read the Bible to me, and so, of course, I must be a Christian, right? But when you think about it, Having a Christian family is not the same thing as having a relationship with God, is it? A relationship where you really do love God and you know his love for you personally. A relationship where you really do trust God and you know that his promises are for you personally. And where you want to please God as your, as your saviour, as a real person. And his word really does shape you and his word really does change the way you live and you repent at his word. You see, who cares what family you were born into. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, God can create children for Abraham out of the rocks if he want to. And the fact is that family faith can actually be a barrier to me ever getting to know the real God. And so can formal faith, the religion of doing the right thing all the time. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought they were doing the right thing because they were getting baptised. They were mouthing these words of confession. And we can think the same thing. I mean, just so long as I go to church and I go along to growth group and I give some money and I give to the building campaign and I join a ministry team, if I do all of those things, does it really matter that I never actually open God's word? I mean, does it really matter that I just happen to look at porn a bit? Does it really matter that I never pray and I never thank God? Does it really matter that I never actually repent and turn back to him? I mean, look at all the things I'm doing for church, right? But John the Baptist says to people who are being baptized, 
You are not God's true people. God wants more than your participation. He wants more than your observance. He wants your heart. He wants your obedience. Formal faith is not true relationship with God. And neither is friendship faith. See, that's another subtle way that we can avoid ever doing real business with God. So I'm surrounded by Christians. All my friends are Christians. Most of my family are Christians. My life is filled with Christians and I've learned how to behave around them. So I can do all the right things and I can say all the right words and I can meet all the normal Christian expectations about how we should behave. And so everyone in church loves and respects me. But it turns out I don't have a real relationship with God at all. I hardly ever think about God. I hardly ever talk to God and I never side with God over my Christian friends. The fact is I've got a relationship with my friends and not our God. It's a friendship religion. And it looks like the real thing, but it's, it's not true Christianity. Because the real Christianity, the real Christian worships God and not their friends. The last way that we can avoid a real relationship with God is through familiar faith. You know, when you've been a Christian for so long now that it's all just so familiar to you. You know, you got the things that you're pretty good at in the Christian life. You're pretty good at having a quiet time, pretty good at inviting people over. You've got that stuff tapped. And, you know, you've got the sins that you struggle with. Except it's just that. They're not so much a struggle anymore. They're kind of more an acceptance. I guess I do just gossip about people sometimes. And I, I guess I do lose my temper sometimes. And I'm, I'm pro- I guess I'm not just one of those Christians who reads the Bible. And, but I am pretty obedient. I got rid of all the bigger sins. It's just that I can't really remember the last time I felt bad about my sin. can't remember the last time I actually felt a real love for God or, to be honest, actually felt anything in my Christian life. It's just my familiar kind of faith. Human heart's incredibly deceitful, isn't it? I can devise any number of strategies so that I never actually have to relate directly to God, so that I never feel the weight of God's word in my life and I don't have to repent and change. But God's true people are seen by their soft hearts, their open hearts. God, here is the way I have sinned against you. I'm confessing it openly. Show me where I'm not pleasing you. Help me to want to please you more. Help me to care desperately about pleasing you so that I repent. Give me a hunger, God, an urgency about pleasing you. Show me where you want me to repent, Father. Do you need to pray that prayer? Have you only ever had a family faith where you've only ever related to God through your family? Have you slipped into a formal faith like the Pharisees? You're doing all the right things and that's actually how you keep God at a distance. Have you slipped into a friendship faith? You fit in perfectly around here, but the one person you're not friends with is God. Is it a familiar faith? You've just settled for the steady, safe, passionless Christian life instead of loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. 
Do you need to do some business with God right now? Get down on your knees and say to God, I've been keeping you at a distance, but I'm opening my heart. Show me how you want me to change. Show me what repenting and serving you really looks like. Help me not to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or actually, do you have a different prayer? Is this something to really thank God for in your life at the moment? Is your prayer today, God, thank you that with all my failings and all my weaknesses, I do have a genuine relationship with you. Thank you for the sincerity that you've given me. Please keep softening my heart. Because you see, you can spot the people of God by their sincere repentance. Now, of course, this whole thing actually should make us a little bit nervous, though, shouldn't it? There should be a question, an alarm bell ringing in our heads right now. Aren't we saved by faith, not repentance? And Greg, are you saying, or is John saying that we're saved by our repentance? I mean, how does, how does grace fit with everything John's saying here? How does faith fit with this? Aren't we saved by faith in Jesus' blood? And that's exactly the right question to ask. And it's actually the last part of our passage that helps us to explore it. Because you see, it's not just that John has a surprise for the Jews. In the second half of the passage, Jesus has a surprise for John. Take a look in verse 13. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. You see, John has just promised that God's judgment is coming. And then Jesus strides onto the stage. And Jesus comes to be baptized by John along with everyone else. And of course, John objects. I mean, what's Jesus got to confess, right? I mean, he's God. And look, we'll actually explore why Jesus gets baptized next week. Come back next week. I, just, I, I don't want to trample on next week's talk here. But Jesus gets baptized and then something extraordinary happens. God speaks from heaven. Take a look in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Now look, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably forgotten just how amazing this moment is, right? Jesus gets baptized by John and two amazing things happen. Firstly, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The Holy Spirit lands on him. And then even more amazingly, God himself speaks from heaven. And you don't see that every day, do you? And what God says is, this guy is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. God calls Jesus his beloved son and he's pleased with him. And the thing is, this isn't just an affectionate moment between Jesus and his father. This isn't God just being a proud dad. 
No, God is saying something here using the language of the Old Testament. He's telling us who Jesus is. Because you see, that phrase, this is my son, it's lifted directly from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, all the nations gather together to rebel against God and his king, and they want to break away from God's rule. And God laughs at their rebellion. And then God says to his king, you are my son. Today, I've become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. You see, God calls the king his son because God's king is going to inherit the whole world. God's going to give him the nations. And then that, that king is going to judge the nations. He's going to smash them like pottery. And as Jesus stands in that river, God speaks from heaven and he says, Jesus is that son. Jesus has come to rule. He's come to judge. Jesus is the one that fulfills Isaiah 40. And if you don't repent at his coming, you'll be judged. But God also says more about Jesus in that river. He also says that he loves Jesus and he's pleased with Jesus. And that also comes from the Old Testament because God says those very words to someone called the servant in Isaiah 42. See, buried in the book of Isaiah, there are a whole series of songs. They start in chapter 40. They run through to about chapter 53. And they're songs about someone who's called the servant. And in Isaiah 42 verse 1, God says, Here is my servant whom I uphold or love, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. Which is pretty much exactly what happens for Jesus in the Jordan, isn't it? God puts his spirit on him and then says, I love this guy. I'm pleased with him. I'm delighted with him. You see, in the, in the Jordan, we see Jesus is not just the king who will judge the nations. He's also God's servant. And at that point, you think, well, yes, yeah, so what? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this servant was nothing like a king. He's usually called the suffering servant. So if you've got a Bible, just flip to Isaiah chapter 53 and you'll see what his life is like. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see what this servant of God does? He takes our pain and our suffering. And in fact, he's punished by God in our place. He's crushed for our iniquities. He's pierced for our transgressions. And God lays all of our guilt on this suffering servant. And as Jesus comes out of the water of Jordan, that's who God says he is. He's not just the son who will inherit and judge the nations. He's the servant who will die for the nations as well. Jesus is both judge and sacrifice. 
When Jesus dies on the cross, he's both. He's our king and also the suffering servant. He's our Lord as well as being our saviour. And right there is how we see repentance and faith fit together. The fact is we are not saved by our repentance. We're not saved by our turning back to God. They're right things to do. They're what Christians do. But we're saved by Jesus dying on our behalf. We're saved because the servant was crushed and smitten and stricken for us. That is the beautiful message of the gospel. Just trust that Jesus died in your place. And yet who was it? that was crushed and stricken? Who was it that died in our place? It was the King, the Son, our King. And Jesus is always both. He's always the servant and the Son, the Saviour and the Lord. And He must be both for us. Or He's neither. That's why Isaiah 40 said, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for because God did come. And he did exactly that. And yes, we repent at Jesus coming because he is God and King. But we also love him. We also trust him. And we also love to obey him because he's the servant who paid for our sins. He's the one who died in our place. And so we don't obey him out of fear. We obey him because we love the king who died for us. So let's talk to him now, shall we? Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you that when Jesus came, Divinity walked on earth. The one who was God, the Son, came to earth. And we know that the right thing to do when you come, God, is repent. Turn back to you. And Father, we can devise all sorts of ways of avoiding ever doing that. We can shield behind our place in a Christian family and assume that's enough, that our lives don't matter. We can hide behind all the formal things that we do, the serving, the going to church, the giving, as if they somehow excuse our sin. We can blend in amongst our friends and we've got all these great relationships at church and that's all we ever think of church about. It's just not having a relationship with you. And also, Father, we can have that relationship that's just so familiar We've grown used to our sins. They're like old friends. We don't really take them seriously anymore. Our obedience to you is safe, predictable and familiar instead of desperately wanting to love you. We pray that we would truly repent. Please help us to tremble at your word. Please soften our hearts. Show us where you want us to change. Turn us back to you because this is the mark of the people of God. And yet we thank you that Jesus isn't just our King. He's also the one who died in our place. He's also the one who has suffered for our sins, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. 
And so we pray that we might trust him. We pray that we might love him and treat him then truly as he deserves to be treated out of love because he died in our place. Amen.